You're listening to Drek FM. Welcome everyone to another episode of Literary Treks. I'm Christopher Jones and with me as always is Matthew Rushing. Matthew, how are you today? I see that you are, according to the screen, you are Johnny Football himself, is that right? Yes, yes. Um, of course, uh, celebrating the great victory for the Aggies in the Cotton Bowl over the Sooners. Um, it was a great game. Uh, I had a lot of fun watching it. Uh, I was actually with a bunch of friends um, who are all Aggie fans. Uh, so we had a great time. And um, yeah, what a great way for him to, to be able to, to cap off the season with a huge win. Um, I think it legitimizes A&M moving to uh, the SEC. But hey, this is not a sports ball talk. Um, it's this, not. This is literary It's tracks, not a sports ball so talk. I should probably cut it off there. You got to tune into our new network, Sportsball FM, if you want to get our full views on it. But but anyway, I like the play on words. You know, I like the Matthew, the Manziel rushing, because that's what he does so well. Yeah, I, you know, I, I put a little thought into it. <laughs> Good. All right. Well, we are going to jump right into Star Trek book and comic news this week. But uh, before we get to the actual news part, uh, Matthew, I know you and I have been both surprised and very thankful for the wonderful reception that we have gotten from listeners so far through our first four episodes of this show. And um, we've gotten quite a few five-star ratings, both in the US and UK iTunes stores. And we've also had three written reviews in both stores. And I thought we would just take a moment and share those with the listeners and thank everyone who has reviewed us so far. Definitely something we want to do. Um, Obviously, Without anyone listening, we wouldn't be doing the show. And so really appreciate everybody taking time out to uh, just give us a a rating, which is great. It does help us kind of find our way. And and however it is that those Apple mice kind of put together the ratings reviews and how podcasts move up. I I think it really actually looks like that game Mousetrap. Um, So (laughs) however that happens, it's it's weird. We really appreciate it. So. I don't know how it happens, but <laughs> but uh, but but your reviews and ratings apparently do help, and, and even if they don't help in that aspect of it, we just love hearing from you. So um, why don't we jump in, Matthew, to the U.S. store first? And we have a review that was left by user Doug three five seven five, which is a, a very very high Borg designation. I mean, he's part of a really massive collective, apparently. Yeah, I think uh, I, act- I think actually he's on uh, Unimatrix 01, but um, one of the Borg Queen's highest assistants. Um, and so, you know, she has a lot of stewards uh, just kind of bringing her things. And, and so apparently Doug is, is one of the highest. And so well done for him. But he said, um, if you are a Star Trek fan of books, 
and authors. This is the show for you. These guys know their subject matter, and they have awesome guests. Cannot wait for the next episode. So, Doug, really appreciate that. Um, again, we'll, we'll continue to try and bring you the best guests uh, in books and comics, and, and hopefully just keep it lively and interesting. Now, the next one we have is from Baby Janeway, which apparently this is a review written by a, a little small salamander. Uh, if anyone's seen Voyager's Threshold, you know that Baby Janeway was the offspring of, of her in Paris after they broke the Warp 10 barrier. Which was odd because I didn't know that the baby Janeways could actually use pads because I didn't really think their hands worked well, but maybe they're just using Surrey. You know, they're just saying, Surrey, I need to send a, you know, iTunes review. So really appreciate that from Baby Janeway. Um, th- you know, she's not as cute as I thought she was going to be, Baby Janeway, but uh, <laughs> really likes her coffee. So um, even at a young age, but she said, uh, just listen to the interview with Kirsten Beyer. Amazing guys, keep up the great work. Um, obviously, Kirsten was just, a fantastic guest and we loved having her on can't wait to talk to her again but thank you baby janeway i really appreciate you finding a way to give us this review with those hands (laughs) paddling through the water and uh and then we have one more in the u.s store and uh this is from someone called oh the profanity well which um we should just give a disclaimer. This is actually Charlene, our managing editor. Um, but she has nothing to do with this particular show. So she wanted to uh, give a shout out to Matthew and myself. And um, what does Char have to say, Matt? Well, Char said um, very cleanly. So I don't have to give any kind of explicit rating here. Um, but uh, she said that this podcast has it all. News, fun banter, and interviews with Trek novelists themselves. This show is young show at this time that I'm writing this review, but it's already a shining star in the Trek podcasting world. I'm hungry for more, and I know that Matt and Chris will continue serving up the good stuff and then a smiley face. Uh, so really appreciate that, Char. Um, you know, without you, she does my book review. She's my book review editor. Um, without her, I wouldn't sound half as good in those reviews, so I really appreciate that. Um, and we love having her as a listener, so... Well, why don't we go over to the UK store now, where we have three more reviews there. And uh, the first one is from our friend Michael Clark, who does uh, the Holodeck. Yes, the Holodeck uh, also uh, works on the Ten Forward podcast. So he says, uh, well done, Matt and Chris, a good beginning. Like any book, I always find the first few pages the make or break for me. And I have to say that after the first chapter of your ongoing book show, we are all in for a good treat. Looking forward to more interviews and seeing your views not only in books but on comics too, since as you know, I love Star Trek comics and like to chat about them too. Good luck with the show. Excellent. Thanks so much for that, Michael. And then Colin, who uh, most Trek film listeners know because Colin is everywhere. He's kind of like Jeffrey Combs. He is everywhere. He is everywhere. He really is. Colin, host of Trek News and Views and Decade. I just expect that Colin is always going on an adventure. So. (laughs) I think so. Well, Colin says, um, two great hosts, excellent audio quality and great feedback on the material. Another great podcast from Trek FM. I look forward to more insights into this aspect of Star Trek. And I can recommend Matt's reviews on the Trek FM website as well. Well done all. So thanks for that, Colin. Really appreciate it. And we have one more from 
the UK. And uh, this one is from Dan Ward, who, um, if you look at his iTunes name, there's a three in the middle there. He's actually in 3D. Oh my gosh, I just caught that. Wow, it's popping out of my <laughs> iPad screen right now. Ow, oh, I just got poked in the eye. <laughs> so what does 3D Dan have to say about us, Matthew? He says, yet another amazing podcast from Trek FN. If there wasn't enough TV series, movies, we now get all the amazing books that are written in the Trek universe. This is a must for anyone who wants more Star Trek to see what happens after the films end and the TV series stop. Myself being dyslexic, not all Star Trek novels come in audiobook format. Destiny is just one of the book trilogies that has not come out in audio. To hear snippets of what's happening in those books is amazing and just really piques my interest to know more about what happens. Thanks again to Trek and Finn for another great podcast. I really appreciate that one. Personally, myself, I'm actually dyslexic as well. So when I'm reading, uh, especially out loud, as some of you might know as you listen to me, uh, it doesn't always go so well, but um, I do just power through because I can't stop reading. So that, That's amazing. I had I had no idea. But uh, thank you, Dan, for that. I'm, I'm glad everyone is really enjoying this podcast. And it's great to see that there are so many Star Trek fans who really are into the novels into the comics, into what's happening after the series end. So thanks for all you guys for for supporting the show so far. I know we're taking a little bit of time at the beginning of this show to to just go over reviews here, um, but we just wanted to to share with everyone and, and thank you all for your support. And, and Matthew, you know, Dan brings up an interesting point there, something I think we should talk about on the show at some point, because our listener Paula uh, who is blind mentioned this on Twitter the other day, I recall, uh, when she asked you to ask, uh, I believe David Mack, when we talked to him about getting his books in audio format. And, you know, it's, it's, it's not up to the authors, it's up to the publishers, but you know, I, I remember a time when Star Trek books were, all the big hardcover novels, anyway, were put out as audiobooks, and I used I used to really enjoy listening to them in the car as I drove around town. and And these days, like the only thing that we get are the movie tie-ins. The Star Trek two thousand nine was read by Zachary Quinto. Exactly, that's pretty much it. And it's a real shame. I, I wish that there were some way that we could get because audio, audiobooks are bigger now than they ever were before. Yet there's no Star Trek content. You know, I'm, I I have been wondering about that, and especially with something like um, the popularity of Audible.com um, and, and those kind of venues that are really making audiobooks just available to the masses in a way they've never been before, um, and are really a lot more affordable for people to be able to actually listen to. Um, I am surprised that this hasn't been something that they've looked into more often. Um, I, I do know, especially these days, though, if you listen to audiobooks, the production value is usually uh, really good. They're yeah. not just, um, you know, having somebody read a book kind of in a monotone voice. A lot of times there's music and there's special effects, sounds, and all that kind of thing to go with it, um, especially if you're listening to a very large space opera. You know, like a, I know they do this with the Star Wars books they put on audio. Um, so it can be pretty expensive, I think. And I don't know, always know if they get there. Yeah, it can be. But, you know, I, I would be very happy without having all the sound effects and the music. 
I just like a good narrator mm-hmm. to just read the story. Um, and there are a lot of excellent, I, I listened to a lot of audiobooks. I've been a, an Audible customer since 2000, like right around the time Audible started around, I think it was around 2000 or maybe even 99 when I first got into Audible. I've been listening to audiobooks forever and I, I really do miss having, I wish if all the new Star Trek books came out in audio, I would be able to keep up with everything much better than I am now, just because I can always listen, but to sit down and read, sometimes it can be difficult to find the time. Definitely. Definitely something that I do hope that the book publishers will take into account, um, and especially somebody like our listener, Paula. We love her, and, and I know that she's somewhat disappointed that she does not get to keep up with um, you know the Star Trek literary universe the way she would like. And so uh, until e-readers get to that point where they're reading books to you and doing it really well, and doing it really well. Exactly. That's the key. Because the exactly. Kindle can do it now if the publisher enables it. And a lot of the Star Trek books do have text-to-speech enabled. But it's not great. And with all the names of technologies and alien races and such that you have in Star Trek books, you know, the text-to-speech, it really stumbles over that stuff. So Yeah, I can't imagine listening yeah. to a Surrey like, Hi, what <laughs> do you want me to do for you today? I've... I've done it. I listened to Articles of the Federation. Oh, goodness. I had my Kindle read that to me, and it was passable, but not ideal in any way. So, Well, why don't we go ahead and talk about some books that we would, of course, love to see in audio format coming up uh, later on towards the end of the year. And that is the fall miniseries, which I believe we may have mentioned briefly last week. We did talk about that one a little bit. Um... This is going to be the series, uh, it says the Federation is rocked to its core as the Typhon Pact uh, is suspected of being part of a barbarous act that kind of shatters this fragile piece that's kind of surrounding the Alpha Quadrant right now. Um, This book series is going to be one that uh, takes place uh, in a 60-day period, Um, but uh, each novel will be able to be read in and out of order, it says. Uh, But David Mack, great... um, Star Trek author who we're going to get to talk to uh, next week um, came out with uh, just kind of a recap of all the books that are going to be available. Um, Revelations in the Dust is going to be by David R. George III. Um, It's going to be featuring uh, characters from Star Trek Deep Space Nine. So very excited about that. Um, If if you, our listeners know, um, he's been writing really kind of the next chapter in the Deep Space Nine saga and and doing a fantastic job. So I cannot wait to see where he takes this. Um, And then Una mentioned last week when we talked to her what she's going to be working on, which is her books is called The Crimson Shadow. And um, that's going to be with the Next Generation crew and Garrick, like she said. Um, I cannot imagine Garrick and Picard facing off. No, (laughs) that would be unique. Yes, I definitely think that's going to be awesome. Um, And then David Mack's book is going to be a ceremony of losses, he says. Uh, It's going to feature the Deep Space Nine characters, including uh, Julian Bashir, the new and improved Deep Space Nine station. So I'm really hoping that one of these books is going to give us the brand new Deep Space Nine, what it looks like. Um, Spoiler alert for those who don't know uh, and David R. George's last book, Deep Space Nine, uh, otherwise known as Tarak Nora, was destroyed. 
Uh, and so Starfleet uh, has built a new one. So we'll get to see that. And, and uh, he says, um, too, that Captain Esri will be back with the Aventine. It's going to be a political medical thriller, he says, with some big lasting consequences for some of the continuing principal characters. And he says right now that the opening sentence is, there was so much blood. That's what we've talked about in here before. They like to just drive up the, the death toll, right? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, we'll talk to David next week, and I just finished my review of his latest book, but I'm not sure that he could have killed any more people than he killed in this latest <laughs> book. So, uh, yeah, I think this this is going to be great. Um, and then uh, this week we're about to talk to James, and so I'll be excited to talk to him a little bit about what he's going to be doing. His is the Poison Chalice, and uh, he's going to be writing with the Titan uh, series. And so that's going to be really exciting. He's done uh, a great job with Titan already, so that should be great. And then, of course, our good friend Dayton, uh, who did our first show, um, is going to be doing a book called Peaceable Kingdoms. Uh, and it's going to feature the Next Generation crew. So this is going to be, I think, one of the biggest miniseries that Trek's done in a while. Um, they did do the Typhon Pack series, um, but I think this is just kind of the next generation of that. So I'm really excited to see this. And as uh, Una and I talked about, we would love to be able to actually have all the authors on at the same time. So That would be really cool if we, we can pull that together. I think the biggest challenge in that is coordinating everyone's time zones. Yes. And uh, But if we can do it, definitely a, a roundtable on the fall is something that uh, you can look forward to down the line. Yeah, so we'll see if we can uh, get going. I, I think that would be something really cool. So this sounds like a great series coming up. I'm looking forward to this. Um, now, there are a lot of fans who haven't necessarily been keeping up with everything that's been going on in the post-television world. Uh, there are a lot of fans who prefer Kirk and his crew. They like to go back into that original series universe, uh, original series time period, and get uh, new missions. Because, you know, as Dayton said when we talked to him, you can never have enough of those. And so Tony Daniel has a book coming out that is a TOS novel, and this one is called Devil's Bargain. Yeah, um, I liked this. Uh, the The cover is just really... Um, it's just a, it's a really neat cover. Uh, it's it's a little bit different than a lot of the covers we had recently, and it just has a, a picture of Spock on the profile, and he's in red, and the background's in gray, and it's it's really striking. And so, um, even that alone has me very interested in this book. Um, it looks like the crew of the Enterprise is sent to evacuate the Omega Sector, uh, former colony Vespus, uh, a pioneer settlement that is on the brink of extinction, and so. Uh, it looks like uh, Starfleet is going to be um, pulling out all the stops for this. Um, their rescue efforts are being thwarted by the colonists themselves um, and refuse to abandon the planet, claiming that their lives depend on staying. Um, and uh, so uh, really looks like this might be a book uh, featuring Spock. And uh, I really like Spock as a character, so I'm excited to see uh, just what happens in this book and we're going to be getting a lot of TOS books at the beginning of the year here. Um, and so I'm excited. I think uh, this one looks really good. It does look like an interesting one. And I like that Daniel is 
maybe a more general SF writer who has, um, in fact, been nominated for a Hugo Award. And I, I've read a few books over the years by by authors who generally don't write in the Star Trek universe, but occasionally might pop in to write a Star Trek story. And, and they often have a, a somewhat different flavor than the other books. So that's something uh, to possibly look forward to here as well. Um, now, this is not the only original series novel that's coming out. There's also one from William Leisner that is... This one sounds very interesting to me, uh, the, the premise of this book. This one is The Shocks of Adversity, uh, located far beyond the boundaries of the explored space. Um, the Goeg, I think this would be how you say it, the Goeg Domain is a political union of uh, dozens of planets and races, and the Enterprise arrives in their territory to investigate, um, as they often do, an interstellar phenomenon. Um, apparently, uh, Commander Lapis of the Domain Defense Corps is first guarded uh, and then fascinated to discover the existence of Alliance worlds uh, much like his own uh, and, and finds a kindred spirit in, in Kirk. And so, so it's um, kind of like the Federation finding another Federation. Yeah, that, uh, which sounds really, really interesting. Um, just that idea alone, this kind of uh, coming in to, to seeing um, maybe a different... I mean, we're seeing it right now with the Typhon Pack series, but they're kind of like the anti-Federation because they're the evil guys, you know? Right, um, right. And so this this could be really, really interesting. Um, and then apparently the Enterprise is going to get attacked and it, a whole bunch of mayhem is going to happen. And so, yeah, this looks like a really interesting book. I'm very excited about this. Yeah, this is a great premise. Looking forward to this one uh, for sure. Now, that covers the novels that are coming out. That's what we have to look forward to in the coming months. Um, of course, new stuff's being rolled out all the time, so we'll keep you updated on that. But if you want to take a break from reading and just have a little bit of fun, there is a, basically a sticker book. I think they call it The Magic of Cling on Pieces coming out in the Stuck on Star Trek book. Now, this reminds me a little bit of, of things I had as a kid um, I can't remember the name now of the ones that we had. They're like little magic labels that you peel off. Yes, I, it's yes. pretty much what you have right here. I think this and and also Shrinky Dinks. <laughs> I don't know if um if you remember Shrinky Dinks or not, but you know, I uh, see. Um, I yeah, there's they're probably back there in my childhood, but whether or not I can. <laughs> Well, shrinky yeah. dinks were those, uh, you you color them and you cut them out and then you put them in the oven and you bake them. Oh, yes. And then yes, they harden yes. and they kind of rise a little bit. I, yeah, yeah, I do remember those. So, um, <laughs> yeah, you know, the moment I saw this, I actually thought, I don't know why, but I thought of our TOS editor, Drew Stewart, uh, Landrew, um, who is of the body, but... Uh, uh, you know, he's our TOS editor, and this is, they're all TOS scenes that you can put all the different characters in. Um, so whether it's their transporter room or the engine room, their quarters, uh, you know, you can have the characters doing interesting things. Um, so this this book just looks like a lot of fun. It, I think, you know, this is really something uh, to, to be able to give your kids who are younger. Um, you know, there aren't a lot of things for kids for Star Trek. Uh, and so I think that this is kind of one of those fun things you can have your uh, the, your younger children being able to play with, um, you know, 
uh, I wouldn't be surprised if Drew orders it for himself. Um, so, <laughs> well, you you say that you can have children play with it, and that that's all great. But I have a feeling that this is going to be played with more so by people in their thirties, forties, and fifties, as opposed to children. But they will get uh, thirty plus reusable Klingon stickers with. Um, the whole crew, including Nurse Chapel, is going to be there, and and then Klingons and Romulans, and I like the fact that they're going to have generic red shirt guy in here because it opens up so many possibilities for how you can play with these stickers by having generic red shirt guy. Well, you, I mean, engine room accidents, transporter room accidents, cantina accidents. I mean. The list is endless what could actually happen with generic red shirt guy. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think he actually might be the hit. You know, forget Kirk, forget Spock, whatever about Chapel. Get him, give me <laughs> generic red shirt guy and just see how many ways I can have him die. That, that, yeah, I'm going to have to get this just for that. I, I'm going to use this. You know, I, I wrote that short story, uh, Goldie Spock and the Three Bears. Yes, yes. And, great story. Uh, I had fun in there killing the red shirt in an unexpected moment. You know, like he, this guy was so sure he was safe. And then when he least expected it, he, he got that red shirt moment. I could actually use this to, to it's kind of like storyboard. Exactly. Yeah. That's what I was so, thinking. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's going to be great. All I could think of was, oh my God, they killed the red shirt guy uh, instead <laughs> of Kenny. So, um, I I have no idea, but I definitely I think I think this is going to be really good. You know, a lot of those TOS books are coming out this year, um, so this will give you a way to actually interact with the books. You could create the scenes that are happening in the books, so you know whether on the bridge or the transporter room, and have all the right people there, and you can really create the visual scene for the book, um, and really make it come into life in a new way. Most definitely. So uh, you can look for that. I believe it's available for pre-order now if you go over to somewhere like Amazon. And it's supposed to be released on February 26th from Universe. Uh, it's it's not the only kind of fun or reference book coming out because, as we mentioned on a previous show, Dorling Kindersley is preparing the Star Trek Visual Dictionary. And we now have some better looks at some of the interior pages and I was particularly happy to see the spread called Captain Archer's Crew where we actually get a look at the Enterprise NX-01 crew members and technologies because you know so far in terms of reference books we just really have not been served up anything from that series. Yeah, and this is really neat. Uh, the page that they have created here is, is giving you a visual of some of the um, um, really amazing props uh, that were created for Enterprise. Um, honestly, you know, when you look back at some of the props and you see them up close, the next generation and, and kind of that time period's props, um, you know, they don't hold up as well. But looking at these here on this page, you can tell that they put a lot of work into this show. And, and one of the reasons is obviously, you know, Enterprise was the first show shot in HD. Uh, and so all of these things, these details, they show up on screen. Um, and it's really going to pay off, I think, when those those Blu-rays come out in, in March. Um, but this, 
this book is going to be something I can't I can't wait to get this and look through this because uh, yeah like you said we haven't seen anything um, production wise about Enterprise um, which is a travesty because honestly it's probably the show that they spent the most money on yeah 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 it, it probably is actually yeah I mean we've seen of course the DVD sets have special features where they talk about production and all, but in terms of reference books, because for the original series, especially for the next generation and for deep space nine, there is fantastic reference material out there. Uh, there's the, the deep space nine technical manual, which is incredibly detailed. And uh, for Voyager, you know, they kind of half-assed everything. And then for enterprise, there was just no initiative whatsoever to, to give us anything. So I'm really glad to see this coming uh, out and we'll definitely be picking this up myself when it uh, hits the shelves. Yeah. The other page that they had, they had showed was the uh, deep space nine page. Um, and it again is just beautiful. The, the way this book is laid out, if you've seen any of the other uh, works that they've done, the visual dictionaries, um, they, I think have raised the bar. Honestly, this one looks fantastic. So go out, get this book, please, because yeah. if we want more of these books, we have to buy them. Um, so I do encourage everyone. It is not an expensive book. I believe it's like twelve ninety nine or something or like that. Yeah, on... actually, I'm, I'm looking right now just to see what the latest price is on Amazon. And the list price is $20, which is cheap for a book these days in the first place. Uh, you can pre-order it from Amazon for $11.50 right now. So it's yeah, that's it's really a no-brainer purchase because it's going to be beautifully done, and uh, it's uh, currently scheduled for release on March eighteenth. Oh, right around the corner too. That'll be yeah. exciting. So, uh, perfect right timing, obviously, for uh, any of those fans um, who just can't wait for End of Darkness, and they're just they just want some more Trek to be able to enjoy. Okay, so why don't we move into a couple of comic items before we wrap up our news segment this week and move on into your interview with James Swallow. I, um, again, was not able to join in the interview because of our difficulty in matching up all of our time zones uh, this week, but I know it's a fantastic uh, time for you to sit down with James. Before we get to that, let's talk about IDW's March comics that are going to be coming up, and we have three of them. Yes, they have announced, uh, you know, obviously all the Countdown Into Darkness um, comics. And so uh, number three will be coming out in March. Um, and obviously this is going to be the mini series, the prequel to the film. Um, and Captain Kirk and his crew are going to be facing an all new adversary that threatens the future of the entire Federation. So um, I'm not sure exactly how this will tie into the film. Um but honestly, I feel I have a good feeling about this series. I think that this is going to be a lot better than Countdown was last time. Um, and mainly mm -hmm. because they're not having to worry about the Prime universe at all. They're just going to be able to focus on JJ's universe. And I think that that's really yeah. going to help this comic. I think so, yeah. And, and hopefully in here, what I'm expecting is that they will actually introduce the background to whoever Cumberbatch is playing and it'll make, start to make a bit more sense. And well, even if they don't name, well, I mean, they've, they've told us he's called John Harrison. I still am not so sure that that's the real name in the movie, 
But uh, I think from these comics, we will figure out who this villain really is. Yeah, I, I and I, I would be very surprised if they didn't give us something. Um, and and mainly because part of reading this the same way part of reading Countdown was is that it's supposed to give us kind of the background of the film. Um, and uh, honestly, you know, the the background they gave for Nero was great. It helped. And so I'm, I am very hopeful they'll do the same yeah. for John Harrison, yeah. Khan, Harry Mudd, you know, whatever he's called. <laughs> well, it's, it's not Harry Mudd. Well, no. Uh, it I'm could just, be Khan. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Yeah. So so we'll find out. Uh, and it looks like uh, next, too, um, we'll be getting Star Trek 19. So ongoing 19, that's going to still be going on um, while they do Countdown into Darkness. Um and this one looks fun. It gives us the backstory of um, a young Montgomery Scott and just the, his backstory, you know, what what got him into engineering in the first place. Um, you know, this is something that we have never seen before. So I'm very yeah, excited. Yeah, this this is part of this series of background stories that they're going to be doing. You know, they've now wrapped up the Mirror Universe. Um, they, they gave us the Keenzer background already. And we're going to be getting into Dr. McCoy and Uhura. Now this is going to be Scotty. I'm really looking forward to this one because the way that Scotty was introduced to us in the first movie just left us wondering, how did he end up there in the first place? (laughs) And there's been a little bit of explanation to that in the comics up to this point. But really, truly getting that background about who is Montgomery Scott in this Abrams verse. How did he get into Starfleet? How did he get interested into engineering? Is something that I'm looking forward to, and I'm glad that they're able to use the comics to actually not just give us another little adventure for the crew, but actually to give us meaningful information about the characters that will help us to appreciate the later comics more as they continue the series as well as the new movie. And even when we go back and we watch the 2009 movie, exactly, we'll know, we'll feel like we know more about these characters when we watch uh, that a second, third, fourth time, however many times we've watched well, it I am on thinking Blu-rays. too that this actually might, we actually might get to see Admiral Archer uh, and his beagle. Um, and so mm. I think that might actually be something that would be really fun and uh, worth them doing. Um, it and would. so, you know, uh, we all know from the first film, uh, Scott losing uh, Admiral Archer's prized beagle. And, and so whether that's Porthos or not, we're not sure. But um, Well, I don't think it could be Porthos unless dogs live a really long time in the yeah, future. Hopefully, but well, and maybe it was um, just know. a descendant of Porthos. So. <laughs> exactly. Under Flux's care, maybe <laughs> Porthos became a immortal canine. I don't know. <laughs> Until he met that transporter. Exactly. So. Uh, that, that, I think that's something that's, uh, as one story idea would be really fun to see, but, uh, yeah, you know, Scott is not a character that we ever got any background on in the original series. And so, um, I think that this is going to be something that will be really enjoyable. Um, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm glad obviously that they yeah, did Kane's first. I mean, we all know that he is the linchpin of countdown into darkness and, and Star Trek into darkness. Um, and so I, I'm really glad that we got his backstory first, and now we can just kind of get to these minor characters. Definitely. And uh, then the last one that's coming out in March is Star Trek 
ongoing volume four. So this is a compendium that, that they're going to be releasing, 104 pages. And uh, this one is going to bring together the Red Shirts tale, which was the comic where they also ran the contest where the fan was able to yes. be on the special cover to raise money uh, for the um, for the uh, comic fund. And also they're going to have <laughs> Keenzer story, which I just mentioned in here. Uh, so a must buy for everyone <laughs> on that. And, uh, and then the two part mirror universe story, uh, which is actually ongoing 15 and 16, which are at the time of recording this, the two most recent comics that, we have uh, gotten yeah, and this on. is great. I I love the the volume collections. Um, of course, I'm I'm already have them all, um, but this is perfect for uh, you know gift giving and and uh, you know just keeping up with the comics. If if you don't have a local comic book store, um, but you do have a bookstore that like a Barnes and Noble or something like that, uh, this is perfect for being able to keep up. Um, and I I really enjoy the way they always package these. You always get all the different covers in there and. Um, all of those kind of things. So these are always worth picking up. Well, that wraps up all of our book and comic news this week, Matthew. So uh, I'm going to bid you and the listeners farewell until the closing and uh, hand it over to you to sit down for your interview with James Swallow. This week, I'm really glad and thankful to be joined by author James Swallow uh, from such books as Day of the Vipers, um, Synthesis, the Titan book, uh, his newest work, Cast of No Shadow. Um, Very excited to be talking to him. James, how are you doing tonight? I'm good. Thank you very much, Max. Great to be here. Excellent. Excellent. Well, um, you've been and have written a lot of different types of Star Trek books. And um, one of the things that I always love hearing is how the different authors have um, gotten into Star Trek. What was what was your first experience, um, and, and what's made you a fan of the series? Well, um, that's a long story, I guess. Uh, I mean, are you talking about how I got started with the books, or just kind of Star Trek in general, or both of just, just really Star Trek in general. Well, um... I guess my first exposure to, to the series was um, was Classic Trek that, that was airing in, in the 1980s here in the UK on uh, BBC Two. Um, I have very fond memories uh, of, of kind of regularly sitting in front of the TV, coming home from school and having having my dinner and watching watching Star Trek, you know, the the original cast and and, and uh, really kind of just enjoying it immensely. And uh, I, I kind of became a what well, I guess you would call a proper fan of Star Trek, you know, like kind of buying the book, and, you know, really getting into it when, when uh, you know, Motion Picture and Wrath and Khan came out, and uh, that's when, you know, I really sort of got into Star Trek fandom, and, and I, you know, I went to conventions, and I you know, bought the comic books, and so, you know, I, I got into it in, in, a, in a kind of serious way, so I've been, I, I would say it's probably Star Trek is like my first fandom, you know, if, if, I, I like all science fiction, and I have a lot of diverse tastes, but Trek is the, is the kind of thing that uh, I think really kicked me off into being a science fiction. Okay. Um, and as for how my career kind of cross-connected with it, I mean, I, I always wanted to be a writer. And very early in my career, I worked as a, a, a media journalist working for a lot of science fiction magazines here in the UK, one of which uh, was the official Star Trek magazine. And so, Oh, great. You know, I got, it, it, was, um, it was great for me because I realized that uh, I could get Essentially, paid for being a Star Trek fan, which was which was, <laughs> and, and uh, you know all, all that kind of years of knowledge of watching the show, uh, you know, suddenly paid off. And um, through that, I was able to. I, I did a lot of interviews with people who were working on the Star Trek shows at the time. This was kind of 
around the time of uh, Deep Space Nine and, and Voyager were here. Okay. And um, I had a hankering to to be a scriptwriter at that time, which you know it's a very difficult uh, road to walk. But um, I had the opportunity to meet a lot of guys who were scriptwriters on the show. And, oh, uh, that's awesome. And essentially, um, I would while I was interviewing them about whatever show they would be working on, I would very kind of sneakily work in a few questions about actually being a scriptwriter. Uh, you know, so I would find out a little bit about. And, and so I learned a lot from these guys. Uh, and it was through that that I got the opportunity to to pitch for Star Trek, um, and oh great! And I pitched um, for uh, for Star Trek Voyager, uh, and I'm okay. proud to say that I'm I, I am to date the only British writer who's managed to sell uh, a story pitch to to a Star Trek television show, and I I sold two story ideas which were developed um, by other writers into into full blown scripts which were made into episodes of Voyager. So that was kind of my very first professional writing credit. Um, came through Star Trek. That's so awesome. So, you know, in a way, I have to say the truth is, Star Trek has been very good to me in in my personal career. Uh, and mm. some, uh, good to me in my personal life as well, because a lot of uh, my good friends um, and, you know, even um, they're all people met through Star Trek fandom. So it's something that's always been an important part of my life and, you know, means a lot to me professionally um, and personally. Hmm. I feel the same way. I, I, you know, this is something that uh, has just come to me, um, doing the podcast and, and the book reviews and getting to speak to the authors now in the last, oh, I guess probably five months. And so, uh, it's yeah, I, I can't speak highly enough for just how much uh, for me. You know, Star Trek's done for my life and getting to meet some of the coolest people. And um, I think it's really neat that you and Kirsten Beyer both. Um, had, wanted you actually got you know scripts on the show and um but she had tried to do that as well with voyager so it's it's really neat to see um the the authors had been so um desirous of being part of star trek they really wanted to write for the show and i I think that that speaks highly of you guys oh absolutely you know because star trek's been something that i've enjoyed for so many years um in a way it's something that i wanted to try and give a little back to you know you feel this is uh, this is something that you enjoyed so much, and you think you can't, yeah. you can't look at that and be a writer and think I want to I want to write part of that world. You know, this is this is a fiction that excites me and interests me. I want to write about those characters. I want to tell stories with them, and so that's I guess that's the drive that that makes me want to write Star Trek stories. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, what was it like having your story treatments and in, in be turned into episodes? What's that like? Just kind of having somebody else then take your idea and turn it into something it's kind of nerve-wracking you know because any idea that you come up with you know it's your baby and then you have to hand it off to somebody else who will take it in a different direction and you know they'll write it in a different way and you'll have producers and actors and all these different people come in and they kind of put their energy on it and, and it goes in a different direction and it can be very very fraught you know because you think to yourself oh, i wouldn't have done it that way and you're making a choice that perhaps i wouldn't have made and i think i learned very early on to rather than to kind of be afraid of that, to just embrace it, because everybody working on Star Trek, they're all dedicated people. They're all, you know, at the top of their game. They're all good at their jobs, and everybody wants to produce a good story, a good episode, and they, they always try their best. You know, they're not always successful, but they always, you know, everybody always aims high. And so, um, I think once I kind of got my head around that, that you know, this is a team effort, this is collaborative. It wasn't really a problem for me anymore. And at the end of the day, I look back at the two shows that I worked on is an episode called One from Season 4 and an episode called Memorial, which is in uh, Season 6. Both of those are written by um, 
other writers who did just a fantastic job. They took my ideas and just ran with them in, in really, really clever directions, and I'm totally in awe of the, the final product that they created. Yeah, I was I was looking them up as you were talking and just on IMDb and seeing the ones that you were um, responsible for and good episodes actually. Um, so good story ideas and, and did turn into great episodes of Voyager. So, um, well, for you, um, you know, your first major Star Trek book and, and novel um, was when they decided to give us the Lost Era of Deep Space Nine, um, and uh, you got to kick off that Terok Nor series. Uh, with Day of Vipers. Um, how did that series come about? Um, and then, you know, you only wrote the first book in the series, so was that planned, or did something happen? Or I was just wondering about it's, that. It's an interesting story. I mean, my, my very first, um, like, Star Trek prose was actually uh, a Voyager short story for the Distant Shores anthology. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I was remembering yeah, that. And that was Marco Palmieri was the editor at the time on that, and then he asked me to kind of come up with... Um, a story that uh, you know, you know, he said, you should try something interesting. You know, you've already got some experience with Voyager. Try, try your hand at doing a distant short story. And I have to be honest, uh, it was uh, everybody was picking all the characters they really wanted to write for. And I thought, well, you know, I've got something <laughs> in here because if I want to write, like, say, uh, you know, a Janeway or a Seven or Nine story, I know that competition's going to be pretty fierce. So, I, right. Well, what am I going to do? Maybe if I pick a character who is less popular there would be more chance that I might find uh, a slot. So I told a Neelix story. And oh, yeah. That... So, and then it turned out that worked. And, and so I, I, I wrote uh, a story about Neelix and Kes. And mm-hmm. um, off the back of that, I was able to do a story, uh, the Star Trek Next Generation anthology, which was The Sky to the Limit. And I pretty much picked the same route. Is this time I did a Wesley story, because I figured you know, right. people don't think he's a popular character. I think he's always been poorly served in the books and the stories. So... I had to, you know, I'm yeah, I agree. To write for him, and and off the back of those, uh, those are both very much kind of character piece stories. And and if you look at the other writing that I've done, if you look at the fiction I've written that's outside of Star Trek, it's mostly quite action adventure sort of, you know, war stories, military science fiction, uh, a lot of stuff blowing up, guys kicking down doors, that kind of thing. <laughs> Yeah, and that's the kind of Star Trek that I like. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong, I like cerebral Star Trek too, but I, I like action adventure stories. Right. When Bay of the Vipers, when the Terror of mini series came down the pipe, Marco came to me and he said, you know, we already have um, these two other writers who are producing these, these, this duology, but we decided that we wanted to write a book that comes before that just to kind of, you know, set up the dominoes. And he said to me, I want you to take this book on, and, and he explained what it was. He said he wanted a book that would be essentially about the first contact between the Cardassians and the Bajorans. And he said, you know, this is the kind of style. And I said, well, what you're asking for here is essentially kind of a political thriller, which is a lot of people right. kind of sitting around talking about important things, very kind of West Wing sort of style storytelling. And I said, I don't know if I'm really right. that guy. You know, I'm, I, I do action stuff. And this is, you know, this could have action in it, but it's not really going to be an action story. And Marco said, well, you know, you do a lot of good character stuff. Your short stories are very character-based. And, and to be honest, I turned this down because I really didn't think I could do that kind of novel. And, uh, you know, twice I said to him, look, maybe I think you should find somebody else who maybe would be better suited to this. And, and Marco, who's hands down one of the best editors I've ever worked with, he just said to me, look, Jim, I believe you could do this. I think, you know, you should stretch yourself, try and write something different. And in the end, you know, he won me around. And I thought, it's true. Maybe I should have a go at this because it's something I've never done before. 
and you know you should try and stretch yourself as a writer. So I thought, yeah, you know what? To hell with it. I'm going to go for this. I'm just going to you know, <laughs> good. Just going to go fangs out and just get it done. And uh, it was a very very enjoyable experience doing it. The the book ran a little longer than I thought it would be. I think it's in the end it was like at the time I think it turned out as 150,000 words long. It was like the longest book I'd written at that point. But it was um, it was really enjoyable to do. And uh, you know I, I got to kind of dig into the the underbelly of Deep Space Nine. You know going back through all the early episodes of finding characters and kind of back engineering them to tell this story that was taking place years earlier. And, you know, writing about uh, great characters like Golden Cat, you know, who goes, you know, before he became uh, the character that we all know and hate from the TV series. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it was, uh, you know, and it was really terrific. And at the end of the day, I really felt like, uh, you know, it was a piece of work I was very, very proud of. And I think, um, you know, it set up in an interesting kind of way, which was paid off uh, in the uh, the two following books. Yeah, it definitely did. How did what was that like getting to um, you know you got to take all of these characters that we did know um, and play with them from the very beginning of meeting them. Like this is you know this is the very first time we meet Ducat. Um, what was that like to get to play with those characters when really your only goal is to kind of slightly reference what they'll be you know so far in the future but you really get to just kind of do some fun things with these guys what was that like yeah it's interesting because you have to take the character that you know from you know the first time you see Ducat on DS9 I'm thinking well I'm writing this guy but I'm writing this guy you know 20 years earlier so how do you take right. a character that you're familiar with, all the traits that you see throughout the following, you know, all the ongoing seasons of, of Deep Space Nine? We know, we know where Ducat's story ends. And it, right. And it was almost like I had to kind of turn the clock back the other way and say, okay, well, who was he before he became this man? You know, how, what things would have happened mm -hmm. in his life to make him that guy, to make him make those choices? And, uh, you know, that was a very interesting. It's almost kind of like drilling down through the surface of the character to, to the core of him to find out, you know, well, what's, what is it, what is Ducat always going to be, you know, at whatever point in his life you look at him. And then taking that, dialing the clock back and trying to figure out what he would have been like as a, as a younger man. You know, was he a better guy when he was younger? Did he become, you know, more hardened and cold as he got older? You know, trying to kind of figure out right. how, you know, stripping layers away from him. And that was a really interesting experience for me, you know, and, um, a lot of it was based on Mark Alamo's performance because he's such a great actor. And just looking, yeah, definitely. You know, looking back at loads of my favorite Ducat episodes of DS9, <laughs> just thinking, who is this guy? Who were you before you were this guy? And that was uh, that was interesting to do, and uh, you know, a lot of great fun because watching episodes of DS9 for for research hardly feels like work, you know. So exactly, that was, um, that was a cool job. Well, and it's such a it's such a deep series, um, you know, when you're when you're watching it and then you get it to write in that universe, you just realize how much depth is there. Um, and I, th I think that's really uh, what makes for me it my favorite because of that depth of character. It, it really is. I mean, I think, you know, I, I have a fondness for every Star Trek show for various different reasons. Um, and I think each one of them brings something different, a different kind of color to the Star Trek Rainbow, whatever you want to call it. And I think DS9, you know, has those sort of darker, moodier shades. And, and it goes to places that are really, really interesting. And it was fun to explore that. 
Yeah, well, and I noticed too in in this book as well. I mean, you get to deal with um, things like uh, Cardassian religion, which we never really saw at all in the series, but has been expanded on in in, in Star Trek's you know novels. Yeah. Um, what was that like? Because that's just not something that we were really ever thought of Cardassians as having. Yeah, well, it, it's it's kind of something that the the old Cardassia had, but the the newer Cardassia that we're familiar with in the in the TV series is kind of almost kind of done away with. And and that was an interesting mm-hmm. thing for me to do as well in that story is to say, well, okay, maybe I can talk about how that came to be, because the Bajorans are very much a spiritual people, and. Right, and you know that that informs every single aspect of their life, and, and the Cardassians, you know, not so much. But I looked back at what law had been written in previous books that talked about Cardassian religion, and I thought, well, you know, there's an interesting point of connection here, as if, you know, we can have the idea that the Cardassians meet the Bajorans and they say, well, we want to be friends, and the Bajorans aren't interested. But the thing that works, that makes the connection between these two cultures, is their shared religion. But in the end, mm. that Cardassian religion kind of you know gets erased. It gets it falls away because it's you know it's not what the current government wants. And and that's yeah. questions are interesting to me. Questions of faith, I, I think in you know religious faith or, or or any other kind of faith, are always interesting in characters because faith takes character makes characters do stuff they normally wouldn't do, and it takes right. interesting places. Whether whether it's someone who's following a religion or it's faith in you know their friends or faith in a, a belief in a patriotism, belief in a nation, whatever it is, those things can lead characters to interesting places, and that's very much a key thread that goes through uh, the Vipers and the later books in Terraignor as well. Definitely. Well, and definitely a thread that runs through Deep Space Nine itself. I mean, the whole series is about faith, which is very odd for a Star Trek show, um, but I think, again, one of things that made it my favorite, because it wasn't afraid to deal with um, religious faith specifically. And that's always been something that Star Trek's kind of, until DS9, kind of pussyfooted around a little bit. And, and yeah, definitely. So found a way to, to explore that. Because in the end, you know, it's uh, whether you believe in anything or not, it's, that's part of the human condition. And, and Star Trek's always been right. exposing and exploring the human condition through, you know, guys with lumpy foreheads. Right, exactly. Star Trek's, I think one of the great things that Star Trek does is it's a funhouse mirror for the real world. Is it holds up this mirror? <laughs> okay, well, you know, here's an issue that you're dealing with, but we're gonna we're gonna project it onto two cultures on another planet, and then it makes it safe and palatable. You can have a, a discussion about it without kind of getting into hot button issues. Whereas if you were maybe talking about something in the real world, exactly. Well, and and two, what you know, so interesting is is that in the end, we all have faith in something. Like you said, it's either our friends, or it's in science, or it's in a higher power, or you know, anything that we truly um, kind of rest our life on as the foundation. We're putting faith in. Absolutely. Um, it's just what kind of faith that is. And, and Deep Space Nine, I think, touches on that fact is that you know, people in the Federation, they have faith. They have faith in in. Um, their science and their their morals and and those kind of things. The Bajorans they have faith in the prophets. Um, you know the the Ferengi have faith in their way of life and their greed. Um, you know so it, it's all these different types of faith coming together and how they all interact is is truly interesting in that show. Well, um, one of the things too you got to do was to play in some of the universes of Star Trek that are really fun. 
Um, you get to play in the Myriad universe and the Amir universe. Um, what is that like getting to do that since, you know, there really aren't a lot of hard and fast rules other than everything's different? Well, the Mirror universe, I mean, the Mirror universe is always fun, you know, because it's kind of, um, you know, it, it, it's Star Trek with the brakes off. And, and, you know, where the characters get to kind of be loud and shouty and do kind of crazy, terrible things. And, and it, <laughs> again, you know, you can show a very different aspect to, to characters that we know and love. And that's always interesting to look at a character and say, well, what might have been if this character had gone this way instead of that? How might things have played out? That, that's the thing that fan, you know, fans love to do. That. That's, that's something that, right. that, that's always part of fandom is that, you know, you look at a show you enjoy and you think, well, what if it had gone this way or that way? You know, that's, that's why people have written, you know, millions of pages of fan fiction over the years because to explore those very, very questions. And the mirror universe is kind of a legitimate way of explaining that. And so when um, the Shards and Shadows anthology was coming down the pipe, Marco came to me and asked me to do uh, a Vanguard story. Because very early on, mm-hmm. when the Vanguard series first kicked off, the, the idea was that they were going to throw it open to um, several different authors. I think in the end it was right. like, uh, in the end it was just Dave Mack, David Ward, and, and Kevin Dilmore ended up kind of, uh, and also Marco, ended up pretty much helming the series throughout its entire run. But very early on, I, I threw my hat into the ring and said, you know, if you're looking for somebody to, to write the word of Vanguard, I would love to do it because it's such a great setting. And Yeah, definitely. And that, but that never came off, you know. Um, but the guys, you know, um, Kevin Dayton and Dave did a fantastic job in Vanguard. It certainly is one of the best Star Trek novel series out there and, you know, crying out to be made into a TV show, if you ask me. But... Um, so because I never had the chance to write uh, a Vanguard novel, Marco said to me, well, would you like to do a kind of, you know, this is your consolation prize, would you like to do like a Mirror Universe Vanguard story? So I said, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, nice. jumped to the, jump the challenge. So, you know, I, I basically I read the Vanguard uh, novels, the, the couple that were out at that time, and then uh, tried to just uh, you know, come up with a way of, of Mirror Universe, kind of universifying it, I guess. Uh, and... Um, and bringing back a character who I really enjoyed, which was, you know, the, uh, the Captain Zhao, the, the captain of the Endeavour, who, you know, right. had a lot of screen time in the first novel. And uh, so I had a lot of fun writing a story from his point of view. And that became uh, The Black Flag, which was an interesting story to do. And eventually it ended up getting picked up and referenced in, uh, I think it's Rise Like Lions and uh, Sorrows of Empire, the, um, the ongoing Mirror Universe books that Dave Mack did. So it all kinds of ties together. So that was good fun. Uh, and then with the Myriad Universes books, every one of those stories has been a novella, and the, the brief there with that was, you know, take Star Trek and just do an alternate version of Star Trek, but do something completely different, do, do something completely wacky and, you know, off, 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 off kilter, something that's nobody's seen before. And I kicked around a, a few different ideas. Uh, I think one of them was going to be a universe where the Borg had won, and like the Enterprise was like the last ship in a universe that was full of the Borg, and Data had uh, oh, gone over to the Borg side, and then it turned out he was like a double agent, and it was it was all about them trying to escape into another reality because the universe they were in was going to be destroyed. But the story that we went for was um, in the end was a Khan story, because if you think of these as like alternate history stories, the the, the most popular alternate history story that people always use is the example of is what if the Nazis won World War Two. That's the easy way to write what's an alternate history. And I thought, well, what's the Star Trek equivalent of that, of Hitler wins World War Two? 
And I thought, well, it's Khan. Khan's that character. What if Khan didn't flee Earth after the eugenics wars? What if he won? And how would things have changed completely if we were looking at a federation that was built on genetically engineered humans and, and Khan's victory in the eugenics wars? So I wrote a story there called Seeds of Descent, which is basically a kind of inside-out version of Space Seed, where we have uh, a ship discovering a sleeper ship, but instead of it being the Enterprise discovering a sleeper ship with Khan and a bunch of genetically engineered supermen, it's a Starfleet ship crewed by genetically engineered supermen discovering a sleeper ship full of ordinary human beings who were refugees oh, cool. from this terrible... I love it. And it's, it's a whole story about um, how the winners write the history because you have this group of characters led by a, a version of Julian Bashir who think that Khan was this benevolent ruler who kind of freed everybody and, and then these guys in the past say that's not what happened at all you know he was doing terrible things and dropping nuclear bombs on cities and everything you believe is a lie it's all built on this big lie and it becomes a story about you know this information getting out possibly changing the face of the, of the whole sort of like universe that they're living in and that was a very interesting idea to play these different versions of characters going off in different directions. I remember uh, I had uh, one fan letter, someone had said to me about two characters I put in there, which is an alternate versions of Kira Nerys and Golden Cat. Uh, in oh, goodness. Were, were lovers. And, uh, <laughs> which Ducat would have loved. Yeah, and, cause, and I thought, well, what, what if in, in this universe that they had, like, you know, they had a completely different relationship instead of being, you know, hating each other's guts if they were lovers? I thought, that's just a fantastic thing. And that's one of the great things you can do with an alternate history story, you, it's almost like you can just go, let's just roll the dice and see what comes up. And, and let's just do something interesting and different because it's, you, you've got no boundaries. You know, you've got this set of characters, you've got this universe that say, well, let's just mix everything up. Let's do a remix and see what comes out. And, and you can come up with some really, really clever ideas there. Well, that's kind of what uh, right now, you know, J.J. Abrams has to deal with, you know, he, he has all the toys in the toy box and he can just kind of pull out and use what he wants and kind of twist it and make it his own completely. So it's it's almost like that myriad universe, um, you know, everything's there and it's, it's, you know, if he wants to use it, he can and he can pretty much do whatever he wants with it. Yeah, I agree. I mean, um, you know, thinking about it, when I, when I saw the, the first movie in, in 2009 and when uh, they destroyed Vulcan, spoiler alert, um, I thought, wow, it's <laughs> a great universe story, you know, because I remember watching the movie and thinking, okay, are they gonna, how are they going to undo this? And they get to the end of the film and they don't undo it. And I was like, that's right. great that they didn't undo it. So they made, a, they, did, they made a really, really bold choice and they stuck with it. They didn't reset things at the end of the story. I thought, this is definitely what that tells you. You get to the end of the film and you go, okay, this is definitely not the Star Trek I knew. And it's not like... Exactly. A new show. It doesn't like overwrite the old show. It's like it doesn't make all the other Star Trek irrelevant. It's like just saying this is a completely different version of something that we know and love going off in a different direction and it's going to be interesting and fun and it's going to be an interesting journey no matter where it takes us. Well, and it's there's no more of that, you know, kind of classic Voyager red reset button at the end of the episode. Yeah, you know, well, that's and, the thing about, you so. know, I think... One of the things about Voyager that kind of suffered a little bit is that it was very much pitched as an episodic series, is that you could kind of jump on anywhere. And one of the problems that leads to is it means it makes it difficult for you to kind of really do deep character evolution. Because if you have to kind of bring things back to at least some kind of status quo at the end, that does make it difficult to change and build on things. Right. 
one of the the things that I really liked is that you got a chance to to work in the in the Titan series. Um, one, just tell me about that because that's a that's a completely different series than um, the other um, books these days because it's all about exploration still. And uh, what was it like just kind of getting to play in that universe with those characters? Well, the way Titan was pitched for me was it was essentially the kind of the spirit of classic Trek, but in the TNG time period. So, you know, going back to the boldly going strange new worlds, new life, new civilizations that we knew from the Kirk era, but doing it in the TNG time period. And of course, uh, Will Riker has always been my favorite TNG character. So the opportunity to, to write, the story about Riker in command of his own ship was, was something I leapt at. I really liked the idea of doing that. And what's interesting about Titan is that we've had a lot of different writers coming in and, and writing their own novels and taking their stories in different directions. And it does have a very episodic feel to it. We've got an interesting diverse yeah. cast of characters. It's not just you know characters that we're familiar with. We've got Riker and Troy and, and Tuvok. We've also got this massive cast of other new characters who have been, you know, who've come out of the fiction, some of them written specifically for this series. And it was just great. It was great to take on board that. And uh, the novel that I wrote, Synthesis, um, touches on the idea of artificial intelligence, which is something I find very interesting, something that's always been part of Star Trek. You know, we've always seen, you know, artificial life forms of various kinds, whether it's, you know, Data or the Doctor or, you know, how many talking computers that Kirk would convince to blow themselves up in the original TV. <laughs> exactly. We've seen a lot of that kind of thing. And something that we'd, we'd never seen on Star Trek that I really wanted to explore was the idea of an artificial intelligence culture of just a, a race that was nothing but AIs. Because one of the things about Titan, one of the, the key tenets of it was that the ship is supposed to be a multi-species vessel, the most multi-species vessel in the Federation, with representations, not of every species, but certainly of almost every kind of species. So you have, you know, right. and then you've got guys who breathe gas and species who are kind of made out of crystal or somebody who comes from a no-gravity planet. And my first thought when I looked at that, I thought, well, that's not really true because there's no artificial life forms on board, on board, on board Titan. Yeah, that's true. And so I thought, well, you know, I want to have, a, I want to have that confronted. So I wanted to have an artificial life form say to these guys, well, you're not really as diverse as your entire species. Because if you look at um, the Federation, they're, they're not necessarily averse to artificial life, but there's not a lot of artificial life around. And, it's true. You know, and, and the more I got into that, the more I started thinking, well, you know, Starfleet and uh, the Federation definitely have the technology to create artificially intelligent life forms, but they don't. And it's, why is that? Because most of the time when you get a computer, it's like the M5. It goes crazy and tries to kill everybody. So, <laughs> right, exactly. Maybe you're, Skynet. Yeah, or Skynet. You know, you've got the Skynet effect. And so you, maybe you can understand that uh, the Federation are perhaps a little bit gun-shy about creating an artificially intelligent life form just in case it tries to strangle them. You know? And <laughs> how would you, as a speech, some from, from like an artificial intelligent species, what would you think of that? Because it would be like, you know, if you meet uh, somebody from Starfleet and they've got like an in, uh, a semi-intelligent computer system like you see on board the Enterprise, let's say, to you, that as a machine, you would see that as almost like a slave. And that's an interesting right. philosophical issue to get into. And I thought that, you know, I can tell a great action story here and get into some nice philosophical underpinnings and ask some serious questions about the nature of life and the nature of self, which is what Star Trek always does really well, is to kind of knit those two things together. So that was where um, 
the kind of the core idea for synthesis came from. Well, and I really liked it in synthesis the um the the ideas that you brought up that because you said it's a great action story and there's a lot that happens in there, but you gave it those great philosophical underpinnings that make you have to think. And I think all the best Star Trek books do that because all the best Star Trek episodes do that too. Exactly. Um, and so I, you know, I really like that. And one of the things that you did was you gave the Titan computer sentience. Um, did you think about maybe keeping that around for a while and making the Federation have to deal with that? Or was that something that they weren't quite ready for maybe to continue? Well, we talked about the idea of it. Um, I mean, that's happened. That has actually happened before. In, uh, in Peter David did that in, in his novels, although it was the personality of a living person who'd been kind of imposed onto the computer rather than the computer kind of awakening. But the, right. the, the problem with it is, is once you have... Uh, you know, a ship that can essentially talk back to you. It does open up a whole can of worms, and and some of which, you know, I address in the novel, where, you know, Riker's talking to the ship, and the ship says, Riker says, right, okay, I need to go, you know, we're going to go over there, and we're going to go in harm's way, and the ship's like, well, I don't know if I want to do that, because, you know, I'm a living, thinking being, and and if I go in there and I get destroyed, I get killed. And and it it was all that he's saying to the the ship's computer, you know, you're part of Starfleet, you're like us, you know, we go in harm's way. I mean, even if we know that uh, it could possibly be our deaths. And, you know, he's giving orders and saying, you have to do what I say because I'm the captain. And the ship's like, well, maybe I'm not going to do what you say because and laugh, right. like, I don't want to go in there because that could be dangerous. And, and that's interesting to me, is that if you have a truly independent, free-thinking life form, how is it going to react when you kind of put these choices in front of it? Is it going to react the same way that you or I would? Because we're going to think in a different way because we're organic beings, but if you had a body that was the size of a starship and you could do the things that a starship can do, would you want to make the same choices? That's, to me, that's personally as a writer and as a reader, that's an interesting place to go to in the story. Yeah, and I mean, you know, Voyager had been asking that question with the Doctor about whether he's really sentient or not. I mean, does the embodiment of all of that knowledge make a thing sentient or is it just really a, you know, amalgamation of a bunch of computer code um, working together to make something and so that that was really interesting because you know this time it's not just the computer it's the entire ship that comes alive because of this and i that i don't know how to answer that question i don't know if we even necessarily will ever have that answer um but it's a good question to be asking we've seen that kind of idea in science fiction i mean if you ever watched the, the tv show andromeda that was a ship that had, you know, uh, a sentient AI on board, and the vessel was, mm-hmm. was the ship's body, but it also had like kind of remote versions of itself, and that was an interesting right. Concept. And uh, you know, recently I, I did a series for the, the the Doctor Who franchise uh, for a Cyberman miniseries, and I had a character okay. who was artificially intelligent, was an android in in that story, a very sophisticated android, and and she was in love with a human, and I had a conversation with where she's having a conversation with a human character, and. And the human character says to her, can you really love somebody? You know, is it possible for you to love someone? And she says, well, your brain is based on organic chemistry. And when you feel love for someone, that's what's that. That's like chains of electrons and chemical reactions in your brain making you feel your brain. And she said, I'm a machine. So for me, it's like digital signals and binary code. Is one, but when you get to a level of sophistication, is one any more or less valid than the other? And again, an interesting science fiction idea there. Definitely. <laughs> and it makes me wonder if we'll have to face this kind of question sooner rather than later. Um, but uh, I don't I don't know 
if, if I necessarily have the answers for that. <laughs> well, that's, that's the great thing about science. And again, uh, another great key tenet of Star Trek is that it's always a great sounding board for, for positing those interesting science fiction questions, saying, well, what if this happened? How would people react to it? Because Star Trek is always about showing people, real people, hopefully, in a situation that's extreme and, and different and unusual. And then saying, mm. how would these people react to it? How, hopefully, would we react? How would the better angels of our nature approach a serious problem and hopefully come out you know, with something mm. Definitely. that's good? Well, one of the things you got to do was return to the, the Cardassians in the Seven Deadly Sins book and kind of give us a background of something that had been touched on in the series. You know, we'd heard Garrick talk about it in um, O'Brien, um, but the Sutlik Massacre, um, what was it like kind of getting to fill in that gap and, and kind of give us that background story to see, um, you know, this is something that Miles had gone through, but he never knew that Garrick was there. Um, and so... What was that like? The funny thing, really, is the Setlake Massacre connection only came in very, very late in the writing of that story. It was just something that kind of synchronized up very, very well, because the, 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 the crux of that story, so again, Marco Palmieri had come to me after I'd done uh, Day of the Vipers, and he said, you know, he felt like I'd done a really good job with the Cardassians trying to explore their culture and, and, and the nature of their characters. And... He said, you know, we've got the seven deadly sins thing, and then the idea is, is that each, car- each species would uh, exemplify a particular sin. And he said, so we want Kardashians will be envy, so why don't you, you know, have a crack at that? And I just wanted to create a story, uh, you know, the story's the, the slow knife. I wanted to create a story about how revenge is the kind of thing, you know, revenge and envy are kind of connected together. And if you're envious of somebody, it can blind you to what's really going on, and you can find yourself in a situation you don't want to be in because you're not really paying attention to the bigger picture. It's like, you know, you just, you're envious of a person, you, 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 you resent the position that they're in, you want to take over, you want to, you want, you want to get what they have. And this is a story about a character who basically gets that and it's a kind of be careful what you wish for story. Because at the end she destroys the guy who has kind of taken what she thinks is rightfully hers but ends up in a much worse situation because of what she's done. So she gets what she wants but when she gets there she finds out it's not what she wanted at all. And that, to me, is, you know, your classic kind of Star Trek morality tale about, you know, the idea that envy is a destructive emotion. And as I was constructing this story, I realized that it would dovetail very, very well with this little piece of Star Trek history that had never really been very clearly delineated, which is the Shetland 3 massacre, which, as you say, you know, involving uh, Miles O'Brien. And, uh, you know, who, you, you can't tell a great Cardassian story without having Garrick in there. And and the thing is, that's correct. Is um, you know, for the longest time, people were saying to me, "Is that Garrick?" And I said, "Well, maybe he is, maybe he isn't." You know, because he never says who he is. It might not be Garrick. It could be somebody else. Because that's the kind of guy he is. You know, he's uh, he's uh, an enigma wrapped in a riddle. So, uh, you know, but it was fun to just uh, explore that and set it in a kind of larger Star Trek context. Well, and what's really interesting too, even just by naming the book Seven Deadly Sins" and having this in there, you know, we're we're really saying that there is kind of this absolute ideas of what's you know really bad and what's really good you know and that there is some way for us to know that you know so these emotions of of envy can can lead to things like um you, you know serious hate and uh you know really bad choices uh, because we're not necessarily thinking straight um and so I just I think that's really interesting, and I love that Star Trek does that for us of, of giving us these questions to wrestle with about, you know, um, 
that in the end there there is some right and there is some wrong and most of us can agree on that. I, th- I think that's really interesting. Mm. I mean, I think the I think there's a I can't, I can't remember exactly how I phrased it, but I think there's a line in um, Flow Knife where one of the characters talks about how envy is very much a Kardashian emotion. It's not like it's not even, it's not seen by them as a bad thing. You know, being resentful of someone who has more than you because it's something that can drive you to to do stuff. So because their the way their culture exists, they might not necessarily see it with the same negative connotations that we would. Yeah, that's that's. I love that it makes us do that, and I love. I really like um, as as I've been reading the the, the Star Trek novels, and now getting to to interview uh, the authors, but also to uh, when I'm doing the reviews, I'm really looking for those kind of deeper questions. And I love that each time I read one of these books, uh, the author is always asking a deeper question. If you're paying attention, yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, we're telling adventure stories here. It's not like you know, we're not writing grand works of transient literature <laughs> stand for the ages, or at least I certainly am not. You know, I, when I come to a Star Trek story, I think, what do I want to write? I want to write a rollicking good adventure story that will, you know, have moments of high drama and emotion and, and you know, and plenty of stuff lying up because I love doing that. Uh, but if you can do all of that and still drop in a few questions that will, you know, make people stop and think a little bit, and the kind of thing that will maybe... That you once you finish reading the book, it will leave you with something, and you'll walk away and think, "Well, you know, that, that's interesting. Maybe I'm going to explore that. Maybe I'm going to consider the deeper meaning of that." That, to me, is your classic Star Trek story. That's what Star Trek does well. It gives you an exciting adventure story, and it drops a little moral in there, or a little kind of interesting poser, and you walk away and you think, "Well, that's really interesting. You know, I, got, I had a fun experience there, and I and I'm left with a question that will stay with me for a little while." Definitely. Well, and you get to do that too in your next book, uh, Cast No Shadow, because um, you get to dive into that time period just right after the undiscovered country um, and work with Valeris, who um, you know we all at the end of the film really hate. Um, it, we you know we hate her attitude, we hate um, what she's done, we uh, and all that, but you get to take her and, and kind of work with her and, and maybe give us a different side of her. Tell me about just thinking through that story and, and, and what, um, you know, what you were hoping to, to kind of do with her, because I, I found it really interesting. Well, with, with, with Cast No Shadow, um, it was, uh, Margaret Clark was the editor at the time on it, and she said, you know, I want you to do another book, what would you like to do? And I said, well, I'd really like to do something in a classic Trek era. And, you know, my, 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 my two favorite eras of Star Trek are the, you know, the, the original TV series and what I always think of is kind of like the, you know, the red jacket era movies, you know? Exactly. Graphicon, you know, because, it's my favorite uniform. Yeah, there you go, mine too. Uh, you know, because I, I, I used to play a lot of the Star Trek role-playing game, you know, and, and I always played in that kind of time period because that was my favorite sort of era of Star Trek because there's a lot of interesting stuff going on. You've got the Cold War with the Klingons and a lot of, and a lot of narrative juice that you can squeeze out of that era of, of Star Trek. So I wanted to write a book set in that time period, and I wanted to write something with a different kind of tone to it, um, something with a bit more of a, almost like an espionage thriller kind of feel. And, and so I was looking around at, you know, things that interested me from that era, and I thought, well, Valerius is an interesting character because, well, you know, what, what happens at the end of Star Trek VI is you just gets escorted away and you never see her again. And I started thinking about it, and I thought, well, she's a Vulcan, you know, theoretically. They, they live quite a long time. She could still be around in the kind of TMG era, 
where, you know, where did they take her? What, what happened? And the, the, the question that grew out of that is what motivated her in the first place to be part of the whole conspiracy to assassinate Borkon? Because that doesn't seem like a very Vulcan thing to do, to kind of yeah, it doesn't. You know, be on the side that's basically trying to foment war. And so what I came up with was this idea of this sort of like two-tiered novel, is that what we have is a story in the present day. It's a few years after the events of, of the undiscovered country, and there's a terrorist threat going on in Klingon space, and it connects back to something that Valerius was involved with, the, the, the conspiracy, the Gorkon conspiracy. And so um, Valerius is the only one who can help start the intelligence to figure out what's going on, so she gets... Um, kind of released from prison in order to help these guys and, and they get involved in this big conspiracy and, and that's how the story begins. But the second tier of the story is a series of flashbacks to area elements of her past showing what the key moments in her life that kind of brought her to the place where she is in Star Trek VI, why she made those choices, what, what are the things that happened to her that made her the person that we see when that movie begins. And that was very interesting for me to write. I don't, I don't know if I redeemed her character. I mean, I, it seems like a lot of people said they either really enjoyed the book and they, they, they thought differently about her at the end of the story, or they got to the end of the book and they still hated her. And I think that's, <laughs> that's up to the reader to make their decision about whether they think her choices were right or wrong. But what I wanted to do was shine a light on those choices and say, this is why she did what she did. You don't have to agree with her, and you may think she was completely wrong, but this is what was going on in her head when she said, you know what, I'm going to help you start a war with the Klingons of the Federation. And that's couched in this, this larger story, uh, which is, uh, you know, um, Starfleet intelligence fighting their way through the Klingon Empire and, and having lots of cool stuff. And, and I tell you what, I had an absolute ball doing that because um, I got to, for the very first time, I got to write a scene with Kirk in it. I'd, I'd written oh, goodness. A, 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 a scene with Spock, and I got to write Kirk and Spock. And I also got to write um, Sulu as well. And I have to say that I did get, even after all these years of being a writer, I did get a kind of a fanboy kind of thrill when I wrote my first like, <laughs> and I thought, I'm just so pleased I got to do this because he was one of my favorite characters growing up. And it was great to have the opportunity to kind of put words into his mouth and have a write scenes with Kirk, talking to Spark and talking to Valerius, and, and that was a lot of fun. And I also got to tie in Is... the, uh, the Deep Space Nine novels because... We have a character who turns up in the later DS9 novels, which is Elias Vaughn. Right. And I realized that as I was putting the timeline together, the, the, the book more or less tied up with Elias Vaughn's career, the beginning of his career as a Starfleet intelligence officer. And I thought, well, this is a great opportunity to kind of show almost like his, his first job as a Starfleet intelligence officer. And so it all just kind of came together really, really nicely. In a lot of ways, I think well, Vaughn's story in this is is kind of a homage to um, the Jack Ryan character from The Hunt for Red October. Kind of, yeah, I was thinking about that. You know, he's the, I mean, and there is like a, there's even a, there's a line of dialogue which I totally ripped off from the movie, which was just a little nod to that, which is, you know, in the movie, if you remember when Ryan's in the helicopter and he says to himself, next time Jack, write a goddamn memo. And there's exactly yes. the line where Vaughn says the same thing to himself uh, in this book, which is my kind of little nod to Tom Clancy. But I thought it was the same kind of idea about you know, a guy who ends up finding himself in the wrong place at the wrong time and getting involved in this big conspiracy. So that was, uh, on, on all those different levels, that was a lot of fun to write. Yeah, that's, I mean, honestly, the mere, the movie era was, was my favorite era for the longest time uh, because I loved all the characters then. I loved who Kirk was then. Um, 
and the relationship that he had with with Bones and and Spock uh, was just, was perfect. And of course, you know, I love the uh, movie era Enterprise. It's my favorite. Yeah, that's my favorite. Um, yeah, it's such a beautiful ship. I mean, and those uniforms and everything, you know, that Mick, Nick Meyer just kind of helped mm-hmm. create for that universe was perfect, I thought, and just fit Star Trek so well. And so, um, yeah, I'm pretty envious of you getting to work because the the uh, Undiscovered Country is actually my favorite film, too. So, right. Um, that's a, that's a great era to get to work with. I just, you know, I want to interrupt something that kind of, so, you know, one thing that we do in the Star Trek novels quite a lot is we look for pieces, the hanging threads, you know, the pieces in the Star Trek history that haven't quite been filled in, where you, you might look at something and go, well, what happened there? Or what happened to this character? And that, and part of the impetus for Carson I said, it was definitely came from the, me thinking, whatever happened to Valeris? Where did she go next? Is she still out there? You know, what was, how did she get to where she was? and what happened afterwards. So that was very much definitely fun for me to write that and fill in that little kind of color, that little piece of the world in. Yeah. that I that, And that's what I find makes um, some of the best Star Trek books when the authors are able to tie those. together. Yeah, that's uh, Christopher Bennett does that in his, his newer um, temporal uh, investigation series books. And oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, he does that really well. So yeah, I really appreciate when the authors are able to do that and, um, not necessarily tie everything in a big bow for us, but just help connect the dots in a way that really makes sense. So, well, you have um, coming up, I know, uh, a new Next Generation book with Picard. Um, You said online that it's going to be dealing with um, some of the things from Generations. What what can you tell us about that? Well, I can't give too much away, um, but it's uh, going to be an e-book release. It's a novella. And it's coming out in March next year. It's called The Stuff of Dreams. And it kind of has a, a weird sort of genesis. It's, I mentioned earlier that I used to do a lot of Star Trek role-playing. Uh, many, many years ago, uh, just after um, Star Trek Generations came out, I was going to be running a Star Trek tournament game at a convention. And they asked me to come up with a scenario that was based on, on the movie. And I had this germ of an idea. And uh, in the end, we never ran the tournament and the, the convention never happened. But I had this idea of kicking around. And like every writer, if you have a good story idea, you never throw it away. You, know, you always just fly it off somewhere and find somewhere else to use it. Oh, yeah. And, and, exactly. And again, it's, it comes from the same place as the, uh, the Valerius idea. Is after seeing Star Trek Generations, I, I thought to myself, well, you remember at the end of the movie when uh, everything's kind of brought back to the way it was and the Nexus just goes floating off into space? And I thought, right. what, they're just going to leave it out there? You know, that's, <laughs> that's, pretty, that's a pretty serious thing here. You know, we're talking about something that's like a you know, temporal gateway, and you wouldn't just leave that lying around for any kind of bad guy species to use. So yeah. I started thinking, well, you know, logically what would happen is maybe Starfleet would send like a survey vessel to follow it, and they'd, you know, they'd, they'd track it, and you get a science, but it would be their job to kind of see where it was going and make sure nobody tried to use it for evil deeds and they try and you know analyze it and figure out how it worked and once i had that idea about this ship that was tracking the nexus through space um i thought that's the start of a really great idea and so flash forward several years um again um i was asked by pocket to to come up with an idea for a tng story and i thought well i've got this really interesting thing here this interesting place to start a story and the moment I started thinking about it in terms of narrative, I just thought this has to be a Picard story because the nexus that we see in that movie is very much kind of a crucible of fire for, for Jean-Luc Picard. You know, yes. It, you know, he's, 
he's taken in there and he's he's shown all these kind of like you know this this alternate reality this this you know this beautiful sort of place where he can he can live his life and when when he's at that point in the film you know he's he's lost his brother and his nephew and he's in a very low place emotionally he doesn't really have any sort of close familial ties apart from you know his his crew he's not like got any family of his own and if we look at the way that Picard's evolved in the novels, you know, now he's married to Beverly Crusher and he has his own son. And I thought, right. what would Picard, what would he go through if he went through the Nexus now? What would he see this time? Because he has a pretty nice life now. Now he's got a wife and a kid. You know, would would that change things? And so I wanted to construct a story that examines that question, and also talks about the idea of you know the the, the kind of action plot is that somebody decides to use the Nexus to do something um, untoward. And Picard gets caught up in that, and, uh, and he, oh, that's a really interesting. Uh, he eventually ends up having to, you know, revisit this place, uh, and when he gets there, he finds something very different and uh, very unexpected, including uh, a familiar face. I won't say any more than that. But it was really interesting <laughs> to explore that because it gave me the opportunity to get inside Picard's head and see how he's changed as a character right. since generations. You know, all the different writers who've been writing TNG novels that have sealed in Star Trek and Star Trek Next Generation from the end of, like, uh, you know, Nemesis onwards. They've taken the characters that we know and love and they've taken them in new directions. They've given them new story elements. They, they've expanded upon them. Those guys have grown and changed. So I wanted to use the Nexus as a way of reflecting that and saying, look how these characters have evolved from what we knew in the films. This is how they've changed. And these are the interesting how those changes affected the world around them. That's really cool. And I noticed that too, because, uh, you know, reading through it, and obviously haven't finished it because uh, the last one hasn't come out yet, but David Mack's new Cold Equation series. And um, reading through that, you, I'm really struck by the fact that he is helping us see the change in Picard um, really well um, through his relationship with Beverly. And I'm really enjoying that um, because... Picard is a character who had been stagnant for a long time, um, and and now he's he's really, you know, it's it's not about the Borg, you know, and his those demons. It's it's just about moving forward as a human being and and what his life's like. And um, so I'm very excited to hear this story and read this story of yours because I think it just it sounds perfect. I love character stories and um, kind of getting to be in Picard's head. I, I think is going to be really good. Yeah, and this is very much that because I mean it's a novella, so it's not it's not a novel length story. It's longer than a short story, so you know you can't have a very long involved narrative here. So it is very much more a, a character piece. But it was interesting for me to explore Picard's character because I've always found him really hard to write because he's quite. If you look at him from TNG, he's quite staid, and, and although he has a lot of depth and dimension, he's not an accessible character. And I think it was only when I read, because I, I got given um, Dave's trilogy to read before I started ri uh, writing Stuff of Dreams. And I think Dave really, like you say, kind of set the tone very, very well for, for the man Picard has grown into. Uh, you know, Picard now, not just the captain, but Picard the husband, Picard the father. These are interesting dimensions. You said about he, he's a little bit stagnant. And I thought, yeah, that's true. And And now these new dimensions to him have kind of given new life to to a character who wasn't really changing. And there's a definite sense of kind of evolution to, to who he is. I mean, I had a very interesting conversation with, with Dayton Ward where we were talking about 
where Picard goes from here. And we were just chucking ideas around, and, and you know, we were saying, well, sooner or later he's gonna he, he's gonna leave the Enterprise because he can't be there forever. And already, right. the truth is, if you look at how long he's been there, it's it's already very much stretching credibility because people just don't say yeah. assigned to a starship for that long. And, you know, even in the real world, you would never get somebody having a military tour of duty that lasts that long. They promote him out of there, and and that would be that. And it's it's getting difficult to keep explaining why he's still in charge of the Enterprise. But of course, the thing is, is this. If that happens in the books, you know, you can't unring that bell once you, if you say, okay, exactly. Admiral, he's going to go off and become an ambassador or something like that. Then what happens? How do you tell a TNG story from there on? Who's captain of the Enterprise? Can't be Riker because he's off yeah. doing, his, doing his own thing. Do you know, does that mean that um, Worf would become captain of the Enterprise? That would be interesting. How would you tell that kind of story? Yeah. I don't know if we're ever going to go in that direction, but it was, uh, it was fun to talk about. And again, it yeah. well, and the growing and changing. For Picard, too, it I, it always comes back to me, and you know we were talking about generations. It comes um, to that that idea that Picard has uh, that he gets from Kirk is that don't ever let them take you off that ship. Yeah. Don't let them do anything that lets you stop making a difference. And um, we, Picard, I think, is is in some ways driven by that. I think um, because he he sees the ineffectiveness, I guess, maybe of of the Admiralty we've seen in the TNG era. Um, you know, but for Picard, I almost envision for him, uh, you know, this is a guy who could become Federation president. Um, yeah, and you want to talk about making a difference. I could, yeah, I, I could believe that as a character arc for him. I mean, I think, uh, you know, yeah. if you ask me, if you said to me, okay, Jim, you know, write the story, write the Picard story where he leaves the Enterprise, what would he do next? My first th- thought would be, you know, he'd, be, he'd become like Ambassador Vulcan or something like that, rather than being you know, an admiral, I, he, would, he would have a job where he's going out and doing something, even if it wasn't on the bridge of a starship. Yeah. You know, he would be, he'd be a well, mediator and, or you know, He'd be the guy that you'd send in yeah. two planets for fighting, and you'd say, okay, send Picard along, you know, and maybe he wouldn't be a captain of his own ship. Yep. He'd, be, he'd be like the ambassadors we've seen so many times in classic Trek, except that you know, he'd be good at his job. Yeah, exactly. Well, and at that point, uh, it makes me think, um, wouldn't he be a great ambassador to Andoria? when they come back to the Federation, hopefully. Um, I think that that would be an awesome character development for him um, because it would just really make sense, especially after Dayton's paths of disharmony and how much that kind of broke his heart to have that happen while he was there. Well, there's some interesting stuff. I'm not going to spoil anything for you, but there's some interesting stuff coming up with with the Andorian um, question, shall we say. Good, I'm excited because that, that was something that kind of... I've, you know, there's so many storylines and there's so many writers right now and the kind of little hanging threads. And so I'm really excited to have you guys um, do the big series, the fall this year. Um, I was talking to Una about it when I interviewed her last week. And um, I, I'm really, we, we were throwing around the idea of trying to get everybody, um, all the authors together to talk about it on one podcast. And she was like, right, let's do it. So, um, so but do, uh, do you know, after that, do you know the names of all the writers working on the series now. Is that is that out there? So it's it's yeah, it's you and Una and uh, David Mack, Dayton Ward, um, and David R. George the third. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So and yeah, I can't imagine a better lineup. Um, I I love all of you guys, and so I'm very excited for that series. Well, thank you. You know, we've got some really cool ideas. I mean, we've been. We've been sort of bashing ideas backwards and forwards now for about six months. Um, 
and, and it's it's interesting for me to be part of that process because again it's 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 a it's a fun collaborative process. You know, I'm I'm fitting my book in between two other writers, so I'm kind of looking at what they're doing, and I'm, I'm I know that I've got to pick stuff up from one book and then leave stuff in another place for the next guy to pick up, and that's. That's an interesting, just from a technical point of view, an interesting process because you want to do that, and at the same time, you've got to tell an interesting, compelling story that is uh, self-contained. So, technically, there's a lot of challenges there, but it's also fun to be collaborating because these guys are coming and go. Well, I'm going to do this in my book. I said, "Wow, that's a really cool idea. Wow, can I pick up on that? <laughs> yeah, throw that into my story." So, it's going to be fun. I, you know, I've got very high hopes for it. And and like you say, I mean, Good. I'm really pleased that I get to work with you know Dave and Dave and, and Dayton and Una, who are all really really talented writers, and I enjoy yes. reading their. I'm happy to be part of that team. Well, um, just lastly, uh, as one of the things that I like to ask is, what are the things that you just enjoy reading? Um, as an author, what are the things that you really get uh, enjoyment from? You know, just kind of picking up at the bookstore. Well, that's a good question. I mean, as I sit here talking to you, I'm looking across the room at the pile of 90-odd novels that I've got that are unread right now. <laughs> I, I'm terrible. You know, I, I can't walk past a second-hand bookstore with, oh, I'll just take a peek and see what's in here, and I come out with, like, you know, half a dozen books. Um, I guess, I mean, I, you know, I, re I read a lot of science fiction because I am a science fiction um, writer, and so I feel like I have to be knowledgeable uh, inside my own genre. I, I enjoy action thrillers, so I read a lot of um, kind of contemporary thriller novels, espionage thrillers. And okay. Um, Do you have a favorite there? Uh, not really. I mean, I'm pretty. You know, I, I like to read widely. Um, I mean, I guess if if I if I was talking about favorite science fiction writers, uh, people like um, Robert Heinlein, Joe Haldeman, uh, mm -hmm. uh, William Gibson. I'm just, I'm looking at myself now as I'm saying this to you. Uh, Arthur. <laughs> Uh, Larry Niven, uh, Stephen Baxter, uh, Ian M. Banks, all these guys, you know, just write um, fantastic, compelling stuff that I just can't resist picking up and, and reading. And then when it comes to kind of thriller books, uh, I already mentioned like you know uh, people like Tom Clancy or Stephen Koontz. Um, I like, I okay, yeah. The the, um, the the crime novels of people like uh, Carl Hyacin is really really great. Peter Tasker. Yes. Uh, I, I like all those books. Uh, Dwayne Sarinsky. Um, wow, you know, there's, I, I have so many. It's it's really hard for me to go to now. But there's definitely. I mean, I think if 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 we're talking in terms of writers who I say would maybe be, I'd say were an influence on me uh, as a reader, as you know, whose whose work has definitely shaped me as a writer. I think I would definitely say um, Arthur C. Clarke, um, Gibson and Heinlein, and definitely Philip K. Dick as well. I think from a very early yes. age. Their work definitely uh, left its mark on me, and I think there's elements of yeah. resonance in that you know you see see in the fiction that I write. And then other than that, um, uh, a fair bit of, of non-fiction. Um, I'm always I'm, I'm fascinated by military history. I read a lot of military history and, and ancient history as well, uh, and the the occasional pop science book. Oh, nice. And we actually have a lot of the. The same taste there. In fact, sitting on my desk uh, right next to me is uh, No Easy Day um, about the uh, getting Bin Laden. And um, that's one of my next books to read um, right after I finish uh, Federation the first 150 years so I can review it for the site. So, oh, yeah, I'm looking forward um, to yeah, I seeing that, the, uh, the Federation. Well, actually, both those books, to be honest, will probably be on my Yeah, the yeah. Federation is first 150 years is amazing so i can't wait to just kind of dive into it I, that's i'm reading it next and so 
um, well, I know that it's getting late there, so I wanted to give you the opportunity to kind of just share with the listeners where to, um, you know, follow you, get in touch with you, um, what's coming up next for you, what, uh, anything, you know, even non-Trek related, feel free to plug away. Sure thing. Well, um, uh, I have a Twitter feed, which is just at JM Swallow, um, and I just try to tweet there every other day if I can, um, mostly just kind of about stuff that happens in my crazy writer's life and occasionally about Star Trek stuff. I also have um, um, a live journal account uh, that's called Red Flag. That's just at um, jamswallow at livejournal.com. Um, I don't have a Facebook page or anything. I'm not cool enough to have a Facebook page. Uh, <laughs> that's okay. But uh, it, 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 regarding stuff that I've got coming out, I mean, here we are right at the very end of the year, and I've just done uh, some audio drama stuff, which is um, not like a talking book, but actually like a kind of full cast uh, radio play. I've been working oh, on, wow. on the, the TV show Stargate HD1. We have a new box set coming out uh, okay. the year that I was uh, the story editor on. I've also worked on a series based on the, the Warhammer 40,000 franchise, which is one I've done a lot of writing for. I have an audio out for that called yes. Truth. And most recently, uh, I think the most recent novel I had out was just a couple of months ago, which was uh, Fear to Tread, which is part of the, the Warhammer Horus Heresy series. Um, okay. Which is kind of wall-to-wall um, action adventure, space marines fighting evil demonic creatures in the, uh, the <laughs> and, and that was a that was a lot of fun to do. But um, my next Star Trek release, as I said, would be um, Stuff of Dreams, which will be available in March 2013, and then um, my book in the Fall series, which I think will be available in the fall, actually. So. Although we haven't got to excellent stakes for that yet, so that should be towards the back end of 2013 for that. That's fantastic. I'm I'm glad that you're uh, getting a chance to continue writing for Trek books. I always enjoy your books a lot, and so um, thank you so much uh, for giving us your time. Oh, my uh, pleasure. It, it was great to have you on, and we'll definitely, um, as I talked about with Uno, we'll definitely try and get you guys on uh, as many of you together so we can talk about that huge series when it comes out. And if it's okay, I'd love to have you back to talk about stuff of dreams because I think it's going to be uh, really worth talking about. Sure thing. Yeah, I w- I'd love to. You know, I can. I- I'm 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 really lucky. You know, I have a job. That is pretty cool. I get to make stuff up for a living, which is yes, which is pretty cool. And and I get to write about Star Trek, which is something that I really care passionately about, and something that I'm a great fan of. So I can talk about Trek and Trek writing for as long as you will let me. So I'm happy to. That's back. great. No, um, and and as I tell all the authors, you are completely welcome to come on anytime you just uh you want. So uh, feel free to let us know and. Um, we'll get you on there. Um, whether you want to just talk about the newest books that's are, that are out, or comics, or anything like that, um, or you just want to talk Trek, that's that's what we do here. So thank you so much. Cool. Thank you. Well, Matthew, that was another fascinating interview that that you pulled off there this time with James Swallow, and I'm again sad that I wasn't able to join you for the interview itself. Uh, it's, it's really tough doing a show between Tokyo and Texas and then having people in England. But I'll be there for, for a lot of the interviews, and I'm definitely looking forward to that. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to have you back, Chris. Uh, you know, we're, we'll be interviewing uh, David Mack uh, next week, and uh, I think that's going to be a very good interview. It was so much fun to get to talk to James. Uh, he is a fantastic person. You know, James is very prolific uh, and it was a great interview, but you're definitely missed every time you're not <laughs> well, there. Well, I have fun listening back as I edit the show. So 
So that's great. All right. Well, let's tell everyone where they can find us if they'd like to comment on today's show. You can go to trek.fm slash contact. There's a form there. You can choose to send to a show, send a literary treks, and that will come to Matthew and myself. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. And you can find us on Twitter under username trek.fm. Now, Matthew, what if people want to find you? I'm definitely on Trek FM doing the book reviews there. Um, so you can comment under any of those book reviews. I'll get back to you there. Um, and then, of course, I am on Twitter, uh, MattRushing02. Um, give me a follow. Let me know you're following me. Give me an at reply. Uh, we'll chat to you about Star Trek and anything else that's just kind of rolling around in my brain that day. Excellent. Yes. And if you want to find me, you can find me on Twitter. My username is C Brian Jones. That's Brian with a Y. And as far as on the network, you can find me every week on The Ready Room with Greg Harbin. And uh, we do general Star Trek news, and then we have a, a feature discussion uh, rotating through the series. Um, our most recent one is, is really fascinating. We had Larry Nemechek and John Tenuto on to talk about The Wrath of Khan, but, but not the movie itself so much as the evolution of Khan and, and you know how the movie got made. And it's... It's amazing the information that John had. So uh, check that out. And you can also find me on my occasional interview show, Matter Stream, where I talk to people like Rod Roddenberry and Anthony Montgomery. And uh, I've even got a show on there with Dayton as well. And talking about sometimes Star Trek and often not really Star Trek stuff, um, science, uh, other creative work they're doing and such. So uh, check that out over at trek.fm as well in iTunes and on Stitcher. All right, Matthew. Well, I guess that wraps up the show. So uh, any final thoughts for our listeners? No, just thank you so much for listening. As we said at the beginning of the show, we really appreciate your support. Um, But other than that, we want to say to our listeners, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.